Christ. You are now listening to Beyond the Gavel with Judge Ron Rangel, educating the public and expanding mindsets. Subscribe on our website, beyondthegavelpodcast.com, or your favorite podcast platform for more of the latest podcast episodes and updates. Welcome to Beyond the Gavel with Judge Ron Rangel. I'm your host. Today in the studio, we have Steve Huerta. Now, Steve Huerta is a local activist who grew up here in San Antonio, actually grew up at St. Peter's St. Joseph's home, and from there, grew up as a homeless child from the ages of 12 to 17 years of age. Now, Steve is a national co-founder of All of Us or None and of the National Formerly Incarcerated People and Families Movement. Now, Steve informs me that he does not like the term formerly incarcerated activist as an identity. Is that right, Steve? That's exactly correct. And there's a reason behind that, because a lot of times in the work that I do, it does involve the justice system, and that's just undeniable. But the label itself, to me, I think really corners me into this little box that I really don't like to be in because what I'm actually doing is fighting for the universal human rights of people, mm-hmm. people in general, uh, who happen to be the impacted mostly by the justice system. And, and so that's the area I work in. But it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm only an activist for formerly incarcerated people. I see myself as a human rights activist for people in general. Well, Steve, I'm, I'm excited to have you today. So how exactly would you explain what it is that you do to anybody who's out there listening? What I do is impact lives. How I do it is sometimes not as impacting as we want it to be. What we do is we work very hard to educate the common person in our communities to understand a system that they find themselves maneuvering through in a daily life, not just themselves, but their family members, having someone who uh, is in your household that is impacted by the system kind of brings you into that same fold. Mm-hmm. So we, we educate them on how to do that. The other thing that we try to do very hard is when we talk with people who are in the managers of the justice system that we're working uh-huh. to improve, uh-huh. um, educate them as best we can about what uh, is in the best interest of the outcome of justice, but not just justice itself, but for public safety. Because how we treat people going through this system and how we bring them back home and what we do when they are back home very much is impacting to the public safety of our community. So that's what we do. And we do it through all kinds of avenues, everything that you can think of. If there is a faith-based organization that is working with our population, we're going to be reaching out and figuring out what can we do to partner with them. If there's a community nonprofit organization working to impact our community, we're going to do everything we can to work with them. So it's a multi-pronged. It's a multi-pronged thing, you know, and it's not an easy thing to do because even when we say uh, as organizations or as community leaders that we want to work with someone or an organization, it's not always reciprocal. Mm -hmm. And so those are sometimes the difficulties uh, of working in the field of change. Well, that sounds like a big role that you would folks lives, folks that are going through the system. Let's talk about how you got there first. Let's, Let's get into your background a little 
little bit. So uh, I talked about and I introduced you as being a homeless teenager in the 1980s, right? Yes. What was that like? What was your experience in that? That's an interesting question. Um, I, I grew up at St. Peter's St. Joseph Children's Home after the police found me and my brothers and sisters in the streets. My father was out, I believe, working late at night and um, mm. trying to support eight kids after my mother had passed away. So we ended up in the foster care system and it didn't start here in Texas. My journey to the foster care system actually started in California mm. where we were at when my mother passed away. And I remember that specifically. And I think that's one of the only things I remember about my childhood starting off in California was looking out the window uh, of the front children of my car and uh, of my father's car and seeing General Hospital. Uh-huh. And that stuck with me because my sister, as we got older, used to watch that soap opera General Hospital. And I would <laughs> say, that's the damn hospital. Uh, was that really the hospital? Yes, that was the yeah. hospital. And um, actually, uh, when they found out we were in the car, that's when we got in the hospital, went out there and got us and put us into the California foster care system until my father was able to get his scoopers back up, bring us back to Texas. Uh-huh. Um, make a long story short, you know, leaving the, the home, uh, I was just a child. I was climbing the fence of the of the cemetery to go sleep at my mom's grave over there off of Castorville and John McMullen. Mm-hmm. I didn't do this all the time, but I did it a lot of times. Um, sometimes you had friends that would allow you to stay. Sometimes you had relatives that allow you to stay, mm-hmm. but you didn't really have anywhere to stay. So a lot of the times, high school years, I think we're actually most, all my entire high school years, I lived Kennedy Park in the restroom. That started when you were twelve. Yes. And then, and then, did you go to school? Did you were you involved in, in the educational system at all? I'm I am an autodidact, mm-hmm. and um, people always ask me, "What is an autodidact?" And what I am is, um, I'm a self-educated person mm-hmm. who tends to just dive into things so much so that we sometimes can speak on issues as experts. Mm-hmm. And that's what an autodidact is. And that got me recruited to Yale University mm-hmm. um, in my early years of activism because they had heard about me and, and stuff. And that was a very interesting recruitment uh, story that happened with them. So, you know, I went through this journey living in the streets. I, I Lived a lot at the library, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, when you say lived there, what does that mean? You actually would stay there during the day? Stay there during the day. Then at night? Yeah. And at night, you know, I would go on the bus or walk all the way down back to the Kennedy Park because I knew I had school the next day. And then? And then, you know, from there, went into the Army. Did that thing, went to Bamberg, Germany, came back from the Army. And what happened was the Army didn't really discipline me because it couldn't. And I wasn't disciplined or wasn't taught discipline because I didn't have anyone there to teach it to me. Mm-hmm. So I made my mistakes. You know, I went in, got into selling drugs, carrying weapons and all these different things. Is that after you were, you were in the after army? After I was in the army. Um, you know, you're young, you, you, you're the king of the world, yeah. you're untouchable. Yeah. I was very invulnerable. I mean, I was like, you couldn't touch me, you know? So it was 2001 when you were formally sentenced on that. It Was was it was it cocaine? Yes. It was a cocaine charge? Yes. All right, so that's, that's a felony, right? So anything less than a gram of cocaine that's considered to be a state jail felony. Yes, I went to state jail felony. And, and so you probably got put on some sort of probation when you first when you first went to court, right? Yes. And then after that, there was a motion to revoke? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't do what they wanted me to do. This class and that class, and I had to pay all these classes, and then you have to work, and, and then you have to be responsible for your, for your child. So it was, I was, that was a big struggle for me. So you got revoked? And then, and then, did you go to state jail? I went to the uh, state jail. I was a fugitive for two years. 
That's after you were on probation. After I was on probation, I called her every month for two years. So she knew where I was at. I just wasn't reporting. But I still got MTR'd for not reporting. Mm -hmm. She was asking for five years sentence. So was, so, so was the state. And here I am in front of the notorious, and I say the notorious, <laughs> everyone knew. I mean, uh, she was a human calculator when I when I was in her court. It was scary because the, the numbers just kept adding up. Everyone that was in front of me, 10 years, 10 years, 15 years, 15 years, 20 years, 20 years, 25 years, 25, 30, 40. 50. I'm like, oh, my God, the 100 is mine. <laughs> it was scary. Yeah. But so I'm right in front of the judge, mind you. I'm like, don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And I said, you only may I say something. And right in the middle of that gavel going down, because I know that the 99 years is next and it's mine, even though that's not what you could <laughs> give me. It's just my paranoid going off. And she says, yes. And the first thing I told her was, your honor, I'm not someone to be thrown away. Mm -hmm. I am someone. I'm a father. I'm a brother. I'm an uncle. And that's actually in the transcript. You, if you get that transcribed today, you will read that word for word. What she did was said, hold on. And so I sit down. The prosecutor comes up to my attorney. My attorney comes up to me. And they both look at each other. And they both at the same time say, she's never done this before. Mm -hmm. I don't know what she's going to do. So more people go in front of me. And those numbers keep getting higher. Mm -hmm. She brings me up, looks at me. She says, Mr. Wharton. I'm going to go ahead and give you time served. I'm going to send you to six months. I am going to let you stay out uh, and turn yourself in for the beginning of June. And it was because I told her that I was what, I was raising my son. I had my son with me. So she allowed me to stay out, uh, turn myself in in the summer, do three months over, and then and scheduled it to be out before he went back to school. Wow. And that's how I uh, experienced who, when I walked in there, only knew her as a hanging judge. Oh, did you actually get transferred to the state jail facility now? Oh, yes, I did. And so you did. You did day for day. Six day months. for day. Yeah, and there's a lot of folks that don't understand the concept of parole. And I know the media really likes to, to say things like, this person got 10 years, he'll be eligible for parole in five. Or, But a lot of times, especially back in those days with the state jail type offense, you did every day of that state jail sentence. Is that right? Yes, yes. And at that time, the state jail felony was was sharing the facilities with TDCJ inmates. Mm -hmm. uh, people there were thinking, you know, it was they deserve to get the time credit because mm -hmm. they're being held at that type of facility. And I think there's a lot of questions about that. And, and let me tell you, three or four riots, I don't know how many fights. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just in three months. It was crazy at Dominguez. It shit at, and it was known as a rascal farm. And trust me, it, it really was. It was um, at the time when I was there, it was nonstop rocking and rolling. Mm, so Dominguez is here in San Antonio. Yes, it is. And so initially, what was it like when you first got to prison? When you first got in the prison system? What did you what was going on in your head? What were you feeling? What was that experience like? It's dehumanizing. And, and um, you begin to realize that and think maybe you are nobody. You know, the first thing they do when you get there um, in order to reinforce that they are in charge, and that is to be completely nude mm -hmm. in front of everybody. And so you... So they strip walk, you away. They strip you away mm -hmm. before they call you. And that time you no longer have an, a name. You don't have your, your number. Your new uh, address is you know, H4C, you know, or some other thing. And right. it's, it's very um, deteriorating and, and it attacks the spirit. So, um, so what I hear you saying is the system strips you away 
And then also being inside the system, the people that are around you sort of do the same thing, right? It's designed like that. Racial segregation is an important part of maintaining control in an institution of correction, because if they are divided, they are not united. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like a microcosm of what of what we've seen historically uh, through systems like apartheid, like Jim Crow. Yes. Kind of the same idea. Is that, is that kind of how it's running there? Yeah, it, it is a system of slavery. Mm-hmm. We, we cannot deny that. That's just a historical fact. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fact that some of us have trouble um, accepting, but it is a fact. There's this perception that prison gangs are really rampant inside of prisons. Is that is is there some truth to that from your experience? Um, yeah, the truth is this, you know, if you get involved in it, you're in it. Right. You mind your own business, you're not. Right. And a lot of people uh, tell you, oh, I had no choice and say, no, I've been there. I, you, you did have a choice. Right. Because they ask you. They know how you're running. Whenever you get incarcerated, you're the new guy. Every pod has someone that's that's running the pod, right? Whatever clicks in charge, that's and that's those are just the prison rules, right. you know. And they ask you who you're with, who you're running with, and if you tell them you're running Solano, which means alone, they leave you alone. If you're running with the Christians, they especially leave you alone. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> but so you know, hey, you have a choice. So some people go in wanting to be radical and and hyper and all these things, and right. and you get what you want if you go that route in there because you know those are the rules. You know you want to get involved, you're involved. Mind your business, and and you you you'll be okay. It's a range, right? And and, and I've seen that from my vantage point as well. It's it's a combination of different people, different experiences, different reasons why people are in there. Yes, a lot yeah. of different reasons. That makes and, sense. and and that's why everyone tells you not to tell anyone why you're there. Was was there ever a time that you uh, begin to feel a level of comfort, maybe a sense of uh, you have a little more in control, uh, less of a sense of always being harmed or looked at in a in in a way that that would make you sort of victimized in a sense. Did you ever get a sense of control? Yes. Um, when they called my name at eight in the morning and said you're out of here. Yeah. <laughs> there is no sense of control when you're incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And if anyone thinks they have a sense of control, it is a an illusion. Uh-huh. And it's a fatal error of thought because it is not true. There is absolutely no freedom while you're incarcerated. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking at some point you have to figure out a way to control your emotions, right? You got you got to numb yourself in a sense. Well, some of the best uh people who um can psychoanalyze others are former prisoners because uh-huh. it's it's a survival technique that one uh, invokes when they get incarcerated. So um, my uh, awareness uh, enhanced very greatly as I as I knew I needed to be aware of my surroundings. I needed to be aware of of, of making sure that you know I wasn't harmed because as I said when I was there it was really nonstop violence. So you use that experience. Obviously, prison does change some people for the worse. And, yes, it and, does. And so for you, how is it that you were able to turn that around then? And let's talk about what you do today as an activist. How how did that help you in the sense of what you wanted to do to make society a better place? You can fight back two kinds of ways. Uh-huh. You can constantly just defy the law, right? Uh-huh. Be the Robin Hood of your community. Or you can decide to um, stand up, educate yourself, and say, there has to be another way for me 
to figure out why I can't get a job. So the transition is is being able to to know that you have to leave one lifestyle in order to walk another. And it's not an easy transition, mind you. And it doesn't happen overnight. So anyone who says it happens overnight, they're not being truthful. <laughs> These are things that happen over time. Yeah. Well, let's touch on that for a second then. So what are some of the impediments? Somebody coming out of prison, somebody who's told you've served your time, you've already paid your debt to society. How difficult is it to get out there and actually do things like find a job, support yourself, raise a family, get housing. How does all that work for somebody that has a felony conviction? It's very difficult. The truth is that it's not just a felony. Uh -huh. Most people who are in the justice system also don't have a, a, a good education. Right. They didn't get the benefit of that. They came from poor homes. They were either already struggling as homeless kids with their homeless moms and dads going from place to place, Haven for Hope and all these other places. So right. there was already different things there. Right. But the felony is just the icing on the cake. It's an extra layer. It's an extra layer. Yes. So when you're coming out, some people say, oh, Steve, they just don't want to work. I say, well, first of all, there is no work. <laughs> Where do you employ an unskilled person? Right. People who generally get caught up in the system have lack of skills, lack of education, didn't have the the same opportunities that other people in society had, right? So, so then they get caught up in the system. Now that they're coming out, the question then becomes, are they better off for being in prison, right? The argument is sometimes society is safer by incapacitating people who are dangerous, but we know that a huge majority, 90 plus percent of those that get charged with felony offenses are not charged with violent crimes. That's correct. So, so does somebody who then comes out of prison, not charged with, like yourself, somebody who had a state jail felony, very low level drug case, does prison make society safer or less safe for 90 plus percent of those who have been incarcerated as a result of their felony offense? It makes it unsafer. For 90% of the people that we're talking about that are the nonviolent ones, mm -hmm. and it is a hundred percent makes it unsafer for our communities. Well, why do you say that? Because the criminal justice system doesn't even practice the own theory of its own peniology. The theory of peniology says that any period of incarceration exceeding the year doesn't mean anything anymore to anybody. Right. The other thing is, is we as a community know that we're underfunding schools, we know we're underfunding health, we know that we're doing underfunding all these different things, and yet you will have a judge or a probation officer or start stacking all these things that they want you to do to show that you're moving forward. And what are they? You need to get a job, you need to go to school and all these different things. So the society is looking at it backwards. We're trying to give people what we should have given them before they got into the system after the system. But the problem with that is that we're only talking about it. We're not really even giving them anything at all. So, you know, what do you do? It's damned if you do and damned if you don't. So the very system is trying to get me to do something that the society denied me when I was younger. So that's a very unique thing. Well, I'm having a great conversation with you, Steve. Let's go ahead and do a quick Q&A break. We'll be right back. This is Q&A with Judge Ron Rangel. Submit your question today at beyondthegavelpodcast.com. I'm talking here with Steve Huerta, a community 
justice activist. We have a question. This is a long one, but I'll read it for you. Question. How could Andre McDonald get a manslaughter conviction after killing and dismembering his wife? There was clear evidence that he was abusive and she was probably planning to divorce him. Just because it was not premeditated per se, not planned, I do not think that should mean that the defendant accused of murder should be given a lesser sentence of manslaughter. Forensics should be revisited. The disposal of the body and evidence was premeditated. I think McDonald should be tried again for murder in the first. Think about what this case as a precedent says to men wishing to dispose of their wealthy wives. I only have 10 years in prison and can go back to my life and inherit familial fortunes. I know the max is 20, but McDonald may only serve 10 years. That was a question from Sandra T. Sandra, thank you for asking that. You know, I was I was thinking about that as I move about through the community. I've had several folks ask me something very similar regarding the Andre McDonald case. And I must say, I don't know much about it. I know that it's a trial that recently occurred in Bear County. Um, I have not uh, paid attention to it because I'm paying attention to other cases. But I think this would be a really great conversation to have in a future Beyond the Gavel podcast. A lot of folks talk about the Casey Anthony case back in the day. I don't know, Sandra, if you recall that one. But there, Casey Anthony was accused of killing her child. It was really involved in some egregious behavior um, at some point after her child had gone missing and was reported missing. It really outraged the community. Um, She ended up having a trial. That DA made a really big deal about seeking the death penalty for Casey Anthony for the death of her child. And there the issue was, can the district attorney's office prove that Casey Anthony intentionally and knowingly killed her child? There was evidence that the child had been killed. Um, There was evidence that the child had been buried. The body had been disposed of. It was very difficult at that time to prove that Casey Anthony had intentionally and knowingly killed her child. The argument is if it was a reckless killing, then it would be manslaughter. And so the burdens of proof that you see in the courtrooms in front of a jury are very different than the burdens of proof that exists in the media and from folks that are paying attention to what is going on on TV. Steve, do you have anything to add to that? You're right. You know, what we think should happen isn't usually what happens in the courtroom. Even I am shocked that someone could chop you up. And I would say to myself, yep, sounds like they intentionally did it and have a court say, no, we can't prove it. So I am with her and just kind of be bewildered and how did that happen yeah it's an interesting question i look forward to discussing that this is q a with judge ron rangel submit your question today at beyond the gavel podcast.com Welcome back to Beyond the Gavel with Judge Ron Rangel. I'm here talking to Steve. Steve, I've enjoyed the conversation so far. Let me ask you about some of the things that you're doing now, Steve. I know um, I saw something advertised about a march that's going to take place in San Antonio soon. Yes, there's going to be a march coming up in April the 1st. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be meeting at Hyman's Place at 10 a.m. We're going to be marching uh, over the bridge, stopping at the county jail to the elections office mm-hmm. it's the second annual march and it's a march that we uh, think is really important and some people ask me well why what's the purpose of the march and, mm-hmm. and the purpose of the march is that san antonio texas if you're not aware is the home to the country's largest verifiable and i stress that mm-hmm. verifiable 
voting block of formerly incarcerated people in the country. Uh-huh. Well, over we went from 6% voter turnout in 2009 and 10 when we first started mm-hmm. to over 33% in the last election. And we hope to increase that. That's really uh, one of the reasons why we're having that much, to express the leverage that we have. Mm-hmm in order to get the resources we need for our community. We're not just about not getting people arrested. Give us food. Give us housing. Give us the ability to provide health care for our children. Give us the ability to provide programs for after school for youth. Give us the ability to provide resources to the grandparents taking care of children of incarcerated people. And that's what the march is about. It's a march of the people, and it includes everybody. Because according to the Texas Public Policy Foundation Mm -hmm. and our records, eight out of every Texan, adult Texan, has a criminal history. So this march represents and supports the uh, needs of 80% of Texans. So you're focused then on efforts of the people within the community to focus on legislation, rewriting laws, changing the laws. How, how are you able to do that? We're able to do that because we're part of a coalition called the People's Process. And what we've done over the past year and a half is we've held several political education luncheons where we brought over 100 people together Mm -hmm. from all different communities in San Antonio. And we rewrote the 1994 crime bill. Mm -hmm. And we've just finished our last drafting convening this weekend. Mm -hmm. Yay. Trust me, it was a long process. And and so we're going to we're bringing people together again um, on March the 11th, a Saturday. Uh, Luby's we're treating. Come on by and buy lunch, uh, and we're going to give a report back to the people of what they wrote mm-hmm. on what they thought a bill addressing crime in America should look like, and then from there we are taking it back and we are chopping that bill all across the country with every congressman that we can think of, and we're going to work in the next couple of years to get this through. Let's have a preview of that bill. What exactly should that bill say, or what exactly should be within the contents of that bill? The bill is broken down in several titles. Because it was this this weekend, I don't have to pull my phone up to look at it. And so title one of the bill, there was about five different titles, and Uh title one of the bill addressed the resources in the community. Uh-huh. That was the bottom line. Title One was the first one. Like what? Be- like what? Everything from housing and employment were the two biggest Title One areas that we covered. And what we thought, uh, how we address employment, how we remove barriers to employment, how we uh, open up licensings for different employments. Now, the other part was how we include the whole family in the housing process. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we talk about, and, and, and it's one of the later titles, and it relates to our reentry, because the truth is, is we're looking for those resources in order for us to be able to ensure that people don't recommit a crime. Let's spend a second just trying to break this down. So let's say we spend $100 on housing and employment. What would the future savings be as it relates to the cost of crime and preventing crime. If you spent, and these are just hypothetical numbers, mm-hmm. like Lord knows me more, but say, Sorry. say I would say I'm going to put a hundred dollars into each person on reentry, I would be saving five thousand dollars that I'm paying for each person on criminal justice. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of savings 
you're going to have. It takes less money to promote and secure public safety than it does for us to continue the idea that an agency that isn't designed to provide public safety is a public safety mechanism. Right, of being reactive. That's a reactive force. According to the National Police Union's uh, budget organization, and I don't recall what site it is, but it is there, 8% of every public safety budget, means the police, um, is all that goes to proactive policing, simply because the police are not designed to provide public safety efforts. So when you say proactive policing, you're talking about situations where you have mental health professionals or, yes. or specially trained officers that get out to certain types yes. of, of, of domestic violence type calls. And yes. the, the police officer is not going to stand and be my guard because I'm paranoid. He's right. not going to come to my property or my business and park his car there and be my personal security. He's going to have to wait until somebody actually violates the law in order to make a presence and intervene. So therefore, by that design, they are not a public safety engine. They are a reactionary force. Public safety resides in community organizations, nonprofit organizations. One of the things that we need in order to ensure, which is what, are the, what the crime bill is focused on, 1994 crime bill, resources, right? Mm -hmm. and especially reentry. And I think those are important parts. There are other parts, other titles to the bill, but let's, let's focus on those right now. Title one resources, and I, I think it's title three or four. Don't quote me on the numbers, but trust me, it's there on reentry. You've worked on campaigns before, right? As part yes. of your activism. And you, you actually ran for office yourself. I ran for office it, myself. And 2019, mm -hmm. it was a short election that um, was a special election. That's when Justin Rodriguez was appointed to become a commission. Yes, he was. Part of our, and so then that seat opened up. There was a special election. You put your name in the hat. Put my name in the hat, uh -huh. you know, and, and my record came up, mm -hmm. you know. And, and I thought that was kind of interesting because the truth is, is we have people who went through office who say that people like me deserve to have my life restored and to, to and to have a chance. But uh -huh. as soon as we decide to run for office, that's not something that we can do. Uh -huh. And it was really, you know, funny that my, my record came, came up like that. But what people didn't understand is that uh -huh. I applied for public office uh -huh. and that's a full contact sport. I was applying to be a state representative and, and, and I think that I would have been very effective. Uh, and I, when I ran, everyone wants to win. Uh -huh. But I, I also didn't run thinking, well, I got to win because I have to win. I knew that running itself was empowering to others who didn't know that they could. You wanted to be an example. I wanted to be an example. Yeah. The fact that I ran, I won mm -hmm. because I didn't say no. If, if there is something you want to do, do it. You know, you got to have the trailblazers, right? You got to have people that put themselves out there to allow the pathway to be um, paved for others to yes. come in behind them. And you see it today. Um, you see it with all sorts of different type of people that are on the ballots. And and so as a result of that, looking back, looking back at your experiences, um, you're saying that you would rather try to do it again at some point? Oh, definitely. Well, you're an avid reader. I can attest to that, right? <laughs> yeah. Because every time I've seen you now, let's, let's, let's let everybody know, you and I have met. Many times to discuss 
the things that we can do to make the system better, to make it more effective. And so every time I see you, I always notice you're reading a book. And, you know, and I always tell you, you know, I got a degree in history. I've always been an avid reader. I grew up in libraries as well. Um, And so what book are you reading now? (laughs) (laughs) What book am I reading now? I'm actually rereading. I like to reread books. Mm. I'm rereading a book called The Silent Ninth, Mm -hmm. uh, written by Daniel Farber. The Silent Ninth, meaning the Ninth Amendment of the Constitution? Uh, The the unenumerated rights Mm -hmm. that people don't know they have. Well, let's tell folks what the Ninth Amendment is. The Ninth Amendment is a constitutional clause that talks about your unenumerated rights. And people might say, what is unenumerated? Mm -hmm. Well, the people who founded this country, right, the the slave owners that founded this country, um, what they did was they knew that there were human rights that existed that they probably just didn't think about or that might come about as time and society grew. Mm -hmm. So the unenumerated rights are those rights, like the rights that I fight for, my unenumerated right, those inalienable rights to self-substance. I have a right, an enumerated right to food, but I'm denied it by the state. I have an enumerated right to housing, but I'm denied it from the state. I have an unenumerated right to reunification with my children, but I am denied that from the state. The written law is only an instrument that guides how we think, but doesn't actually dictate the entirety of what that thought is. Mm-hmm. I'm getting too technical. No, no. I mean, it kind of, <laughs> it, it, it kind of reminds me of the 14th Amendment, right? Where, yeah. where it talks about the privileges and immunities of all the citizens of the United States shall not be infringed upon. What does that mean? What exactly does privileges and immunities of citizens in the United States? So, you know, you can look at it one way and it could be taken in, in, in one person could look at it one way and, and take it in a totally different way than somebody else. Yes. Yeah. And, and if you look at the one of the biggest things in terms of the federal laws that impacts people with records, it's going to be the 13th Amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, people don't realize that slavery is actually legal in America. Um, if you call the Justice Department, they will tell you, yes, it's, it's authorized by the 13th Amendment. If you are incarcerated, if you're a convicted felon, they can force you to work because you are legally, this is really freaky, the, the actual terminology for a prisoner who has to go to work mm-hmm. is not inmate. Mm-hmm. It is slave. It's in the Constitution. So speaking to you as a brown, former brown slave, I'm traumatized by the era of slavery in our modern day society. And I fight for that right for everybody. And that's something that you and I, you and I were talking about coming in, the concept of slavery. You said that you're being involved currently in the fight against slavery. Yes. You, you want to tell us what that means? We have a national campaign. It's called the uh, Abolish Slavery Collective. Uh, we also have colleagues here in the state of Texas, Jorge Renaud and too. But what we're trying to do is end the ability to force people to go to work. We think that if you are going to be working in the institution, that you should get paid for it because that some of that money could be used uh, to help pay your bills. Say you bring your child support. If you're going to go in the kitchen and work every day to feed the prisoners, what would that look like if they actually hired a, a outside contractor to come in there? Right. Well, that's the kind of budget we need to build so that prison is able to have the 
inmate, right? Our, our people, when they're working, get paid for that work. They can save money. They can pay for medical. They can pay child support. They can save money to come out and, and, and be able to move into a place. But they should get paid for the work they do. Now, now, you and I have talked a little bit about our ages, right? And even though you don't look like it, you and I are about the same age. <laughs> yes. Where do you see Steve Wetta in the future? What what kind of work do you see yourself focusing on as you as you look ahead? That's interesting because um, I love what I do, and I've been doing this for about twenty five years, doing it for a long time. I've been mm -hmm. a, I've been uh, a part of changing laws across the United States. I was part of um, the, you know, Ban the Box initiative, working with Roy Austin, Deputy Assistant to the President Obama on domestic policy, and, and we got the executive order for Ban the Box. What was that, what was that about? And, and I, I do remember that campaign. Yeah, that, the Ban the Box is, is basically removing the question, have you ever been convicted or arrested of a crime? And then we've been in, we've been in a part of changing a lot of different things, and I love that. So when you say remove that, you're talking about from application forms, yeah. people are looking for jobs, people looking for housing, that kind of thing. Yes, yes, all those different things. And so what I see myself is uh, shifting into new areas. You know, first I'm gonna I'm gonna stay in the realm of justice reform because I think it's important and I think I'm needed. But I'm also involved with the MUFON organization. And MUFON is the Mutual UFO Network. Uh, we are the world's largest UFO investigative agency. Mm -hmm. And uh, I am the new co-host to the podcast show for San Antonio MUFON, where we discuss uh, and interview investigators and scientists and doctors. Of UFOs? Yes. Uh -huh. Podcast number four is coming out. Uh -huh. uh, we're going to be kicking it up. We're going to be having people from our national leaderships coming down and, and stuff. And so we're going to be mixing it up and doing all kinds of things. So you know, that's kind of that's kind of what I think about with this podcast. I think at some point I'm going to talk about things that just interest me. I'm going to bring a chef on and we're going to talk about the kind of work that a chef does. I think that's so valuable in society. There's a lot of places that we could go with these podcasts, right? All right. I, I can already see it. Uh-huh. I'm ready to eat. <laughs> ready to eat. <laughs> so there was something that, that one of your organizations has done um, related to folks that have a warrant for their arrest, maybe a Class C misdemeanor that didn't appear in court. You had a warrant roundup of some sort, right? Yes, we had a warrant clinic that we put together with the JP courts. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we did it twice last year. Mm -hmm. We had so many people show up to the second event on December the 10th of uh, last year mm -hmm. that we had to actually start turning people away. The, the need is great. Um, there are a lot of people. San Antonio has over 100,000 drivers with no driver's license because they owe tickets. How it's a big work? problem. So how did that work? They had tickets. Maybe they didn't show up to court. Yeah. You had an agreement with some organ with maybe some justices of the peace. And how does that work? Most of the people that showed up were actually moms. Uh -huh. With kids. Uh -huh. I mean, so there are no, there's no daycare. You can't take the kids to court. People start to trip. So you can't do that. So the community court allowed them. We had daycare center. We had food and stuff for them. It allowed them to come with the family and see the judge and take care of their business. Uh -huh. Some of them had not had a job for years because they had a ticket. And so this clinic, then, you had agreements with justices of the peace, yes. not to arrest, but to let folks come in and let them resolve whatever their situation. It was a great relationship. We had the justice of the peace, the district attorney's office. We had the public defender's office mm -hmm. involved. And uh, we had some lawyer groups, the Texas Fair Defense Project that mm -hmm. uh, came in. Uh, we had the Immigration Legal uh, Resource Center uh, that came in, mm -hmm. uh, Carolina. Really great, wonderful activist who was there to make sure that uh, immigrants that came in 
uh, didn't fear deportation. And these are all, these are all class C misdemeanors. So on its face, the range of punishment does not involve any jail time whatsoever. No. It's basically fine up to $500. Yes. It's the lowest level of, of, of misdemeanor that there is in Texas. Right? Yes. And I, and I, and I think municipalities need to follow, uh, the, the lead of, of the county in that practice. Uh-huh. I, I just know it and can speak to the truth that Windquest, it's on the, it's on their website says that if you have a warrant and you want to settle, come in to, to talk to the judge to settle your warrant, you got to pay a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's some real gangster stuff. <laughs> so they're coming at you hard. I'm like, wow. So yeah, that's a thing. That's a serious issue. Do you have any idea how many nonprofit organizations in San Antonio exist? Yes. It's over 300. Uh, over 300 that focus on criminal justice. Issues. Yes. And, and um, 99% of them have no money. The grassroots community organizations, they're essential to the community. Uh-huh. You guys out there with no money, doing what you know is right, you need to start organizing, and we need to start asking for that money. How do they do that? They they, they get a hold. They get a hold of other nonprofits like yours. And- yeah, and 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 we need to organize. I've been trying to get executive directors to do this for for the past couple of years actually and and um and that's that's why you know i've already mastered you know when i know people are looking at me like i'm stupid because i've gotten to look too many damn times uh-huh. what are some other criminal justice reform issues that you've been involved in the uh restoration of visitation rights to people who are incarcerated because mm-hmm. one of the things that uh, i know for a fact and even professionals know is that family communication for prisoners is essential to successful reentry. Uh, especially with children and and relationship with children, you know that's one of the things that we didn't talk about uh, mm-hmm. earlier. But being a part of the reentry council allowed us to do that, so that uh, was a part of what my journey was. Well, reentry council. What is a reentry council? A reentry council is a group of organizations in Bear County that get together that cover various uh, issues that involve us: housing, employment, mental health, health, all these different areas. Come up with ideas on how the county can best react and approach uh, the needs of our population. Maybe somebody who's in prison being released or somebody who is uh, getting off of probation, how to help, how to help them guide through yes. the resources that could be out there to help them become a contributing member of society. Don't come out. It's amazing because you got a group of professionals in a room that will all agree what we need. And as soon as, as, soon as I say, well, let's go advocate for the money. I get that. This guy's stupid. Like, how, how do you do that? Right? Yeah. It's like, they look at you like you're weird. Like something's wrong with you. Well, let's talk a little bit about all of us or none. What exactly does all of us or none do as an agency? All of us or none is a national organizing initiative uh-huh. of formerly incarcerated, incarcerated people, our families and friends and allies. And what we are designed to do is fight for the full restoration of our civil and human rights uh-huh. because we don't have them. Well, you know, sometimes when you get individuals that live in a certain city, and we'll just use San Antonio as an example, um, they don't understand a lot of the progress that their communities have made. I mean, San Antonio within the justice system um, is really considered to be a leader around the state. And I get calls from all different places, not just within Texas, but outside of Texas, asking about how it is that we're able to accomplish certain things here. What do you see that is good about the system in, in Bexar County? There's, there's, there's more willingness to have a, have a discussion. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we're not there yet where everybody's just holding hands and dancing together. Um, and I don't think we'll ever actually be there. Um, but we're getting, we're making strides and getting more and more people to be more receptive to the idea that they got to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. And the reason being is because they're beginning to figure out that a lot of the work around criminal justice reform that's being done is being done without us. Mm-hmm. And because it's being done without us, they're not getting real productive input. Mm-hmm. And so when we, as we become more active, people realize, you know what? I need your input. And so we're getting closer and moving forward there. And, and the next steps after that, uh, I, I, I'm just really hopeful of what those next steps actually look like. I really can't say, but I know they are next steps. But the first big step that we have taken is that more and more people are having an open mind and an open ear. Oh, that's good to hear. That's important. Yes, it is, because th- th- that's what required. Laws don't change people. People change people. Right, right. Well, Steve, I appreciate talking to you. I do too, man. I loved you coming. Just inviting me to this is really powerful. I really appreciate it because so often, you know, people like me aren't given the mic. And so this is like an honor. And I really thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to express myself to your listeners. Well, you know, you're, you're making yourself a force. I think the organizations are out there. I think it's important for people to know that the justice system is not just folks within the bureaucracies, but the community, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the justice system is made up of, first and foremost, the community. And that's a part of what you represent, right? Yes, yes. Well, I appreciate you being here. Have any last words? Thank you for inviting me, because I've always believed that you can't really get to know what's behind the gavel until you talk to the guy standing in front of it. <laughs> That's beautiful, Steve. For all the listeners out there, thank you so much for listening. I've enjoyed this conversation with Steve Huerta here. Please make sure to ask us any questions you want. This last question was a great one. I look forward to further discussions on that. See you next time. You've been listening to Beyond the Gavel with Judge Ron Ranghill. Join us in the next two weeks where we are educating the public and expanding mindsets. Head to our website, beyondthegavelpodcast.com, or your favorite podcast platform to subscribe to the latest episodes and updates.